All right, I think we're ready to get started. Well, good morning, Cedar Ridge. It's so good to be here with you this morning. This morning, we're in week three of our Surprised by Love series, at least part two of our Surprised by Love series, which is an exploration through Mark's gospel. Now, this morning, we're in chapters 11 and 12, and these chapters are loaded with scenes from Jesus' life and ministry. And in my Bible, there's 10 sections in these chapters, and there's a lot of content here. So to be honest, I'll just say up front, there's no way we're getting to it and no way that I could cover it all and do it justice. Uh, we do have the questions for reflection and discussion that are out on the welcome table in the lobby and on our website where you can see more about these chapters and you can kind of dive deeper in them, either with a group or on your own time. Um, but we're going to spend our time this morning in section two of these two chapters, uh, which is Mark 11, um, verse 12 through 26. We're going to kind of work our way into, uh, into that section, at least, um, because I think what happens here uh, in these verses is crucial to understanding uh, the events that lead up to Jesus' death. Now, there's so much for us to explore in these verses. Not only do we have this perplexing story of Jesus cursing a fig tree, um, but there's also a popular story about Jesus storming the temple, turning over tables, staging a protest against the unjust practices that have been allowed to take root in the temple culture. And as has been mentioned in previous messages in this series, Mark's gospel is a fast-moving narrative. It almost seems like Mark is racing towards this explosive encounter uh, between Jesus and the religious authorities in Jerusalem. It's like two worlds coming together, two worlds headed for a collision. The Jewish authorities who are based in Jerusalem, uh, the center of religious life and an urban center for the Jews. And then you have Jesus, who, on the other hand, spent most of his time out in the wilderness, out in the countryside, traveling between rural communities and building relationships with everyday blue collar folks. Now, one might assume um, that that Jesus felt more comfortable in that setting because he spent so much time there, which makes sense, right? Given his rural upbringing. In fact, most scholars agree that Jesus was probably born in a small town uh, in Galilee called Nazareth to a poor family. Uh, and this Nazareth seems, at least in the biblical narrative and just in the historical narrative, Nazareth, at least at that time, seems uh, like a fairly insignificant place and in the biblical narrative, it doesn't even seem like it has the best reputation. There's actually this funny story you may be familiar with in John's gospel where a guy named Philip meets Jesus and has such a positive encounter with him that he runs. First thing he does, he runs and tells his friend Nathaniel about Jesus. And he goes, hey, you got to meet this guy, Jesus of Nazareth. Right. And it's almost like uh, like like. Uh, like um, uh, Nathaniel didn't hear anything Jesus said, but Nazareth, because look at how he responds in John 1, verse 46. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathaniel asked. Now, I'm sure that wasn't the response that Philip was expecting, but I imagine that people from Nazareth probably were used to or familiar, at least, with the experience of being overlooked, looked down upon, and even stereotyped. 
But it doesn't seem, at least to me, as I read through the narrative, it doesn't seem like Jesus is really trying to shake that perception. In fact, he seems content doing rural ministry among common people. And maybe he recognized uh, that it's easier to capture somebody's attention out in the country in a rural area uh, where you don't have as many distractions and the noise and the things going on in the city. You know, many people have reported having spiritual experiences when they get away from the city and all the noise and distractions of the urban environment, and they immerse themselves in the natural world. You know, interesting enough, if you read the Bible, you'll see that one of the major transformational moments in Jesus' life happened out in the country, like deep in the country, in what Mark calls the wilderness. Uh, look at Mark chapter 1, verse 4. It says, and so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. And then if you drop down to verse 9, it says, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And then shortly after his baptism, Jesus begins his ministry in the rural communities around Galilee. And people start traveling from as far away as Jerusalem to see with their own eyes this thing they heard was happening in the countryside. Look at Mark chapter 3, verse 7. Jesus withdrew, it says, with his disciples to a lake and a large crowd from Galilee followed him. They heard what, about the things he was doing, and many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Edomia, and the regions across the Jordan and across Tyre and Sidon. And you see, we see again in chapter 7, that Mark records crowds coming from Jerusalem, from the uh, urban center, the bigger city, the more crowded place. Crowds are coming from Jerusalem to see and experience Jesus' ministry for themselves. And in this verse, boy, they see something. Uh, it says the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus. And then look at this little detail. And they saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed. And so we have these city folk that just walk up on Jesus' disciples with dirty hands. I imagine uh, uh, them sitting there with a bowls of olive tapenade. I think that's a thing they would have done in biblical times, just scooping it out with dirty hands and eating it. And these city folks don't know what they just walked on up on out in the country. You know, for the most part, it seems Jesus built his ministry out in the country. And thousands of people made a trek to see and hear and experience Jesus' teaching and healing ministry. And this goes against the logic of how movements get started, right? Typically, those who want to influence culture and start a movement that will have a larger-than-life impact assume that they have to move towards the city centers, but what we see in Jesus' ministry goes against the cultural norms and expectations. It emphasizes what we see over and over again in Scripture, and that is that God often works in unexpected places, through unexpected people, often using unconventional methods. 
in the first century, God showed up in the rural communities around Galilee and Judea in such a transformational way that people are still talking about it today. And Mark's gospel um, doesn't even record Jesus going to the city, going to Jerusalem to the last week of his life. That's where we are this morning. And I love how Mark describes Jesus' journey to Jerusalem with his disciples in Mark chapter 10, verse 32. Matthew read this verse last week. Um, we'll read it again this morning just for context. It says, they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. I love that language. He was leading the way, walking confidently before the disciples to Jerusalem. And the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. And again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and ha hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. And then three days later, he will rise. Now, I'm sure the disciples were wondering if this was another metaphor that Jesus was using, maybe. Uh, they're like, is Jesus still using hyperbole or is he using it again? Uh, he, he can't be serious, I would imagine they were thinking. This had to be so confusing for the disciples, especially when you consider what happens on the final leg of this trip. And this is recorded in Mark. Uh, chapter 11, verse 1, uh, actually through 1 through verse 11, there's a section there. And we're going to actually dive deeper into that passage on Palm Sunday. But the abbreviated version is Jesus borrows a donkey and he rides into the city as people line the street and greet him waving palm branches like he's a victorious king coming back from battle. It's peculiar. It's perplexing. It's recorded in all four Gospels, and it's one of those stories that make you pause and go, what, why, what are we reading here? Especially considering the trajectory of Jesus' life. And we'll come back to that on March 24th, but for now, we're going to pick up the story in verse 11 after Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, walks into the temple courts. Now, this is the moment that it feels like Mark's Gospel has been building up to. It's the moment we've been waiting for. Mark's been setting the scene for this encounter uh, for several chapters now. The tension feels thick. And look at what happens when Jesus walks into the temple in verse 11. It says, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything. I love that. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Talk about anticlimactic. We've been waiting for this to happen. This whole book has been driving the momentum of Mark's gospel has been moving towards this moment. Jesus walks on the home turf of the Jewish authorities. They're getting ready to collide. And Jesus is just like, eh, a little late. <laughs> we'll deal with this tomorrow. Uh, now, I can't what, read this story without wondering what's going through Jesus' mind at that moment. What do you think he was thinking about? Was he second-guessing his decision to confront the Jewish authorities in their own backyard? 
maybe he remembered how simple life was as a relatively unknown carpenter in Nazareth. And he longed for the life he once had. Could he have seriously considered going back to that life? Or maybe he saw teachers and philosophers gathered in corners around the temple and wondered what it would be like to establish a teaching ministry in Jerusalem. That might not cost him his life. Maybe he was just mentally, emotionally, physically drained, exhausted, and didn't have the energy at that moment to confront the Jewish authorities. Maybe he just needed a good night's rest. He could do miracles for the mind. You know, all these options would have been easier than what he did on the next day. And if you're familiar with the story, you know Jesus is going to return to the temple on the next day. He's going to stage a protest that's so disruptive that it prompts the religious leaders to begin devising a plan to take his life. And I'm curious. I can't help but wonder. When Jesus looked around and saw everything, as the Bible says in the temple, what did he see that disturbed him so deeply? What bothered him so badly that he just couldn't let it go? What cause catalyzed him to stand up, speak up, stage a protest against such a powerful institution? Whatever it was, it must have been swirling in his head as he went to Bethany to search for a place to stay. Now, there's a good chance that Jesus stayed with his old friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. If you know that story, they kind of owed him a favor, and they lived in Bethany. But I like to imagine that Jesus was just a little frugal, kind of like I am, and went to Bethany because he knew he could find more affordable accommodations out in the burbs. I don't know if y'all do that on vacation. I'll visit a city, but I'll stay out in the burbs because hotels are cheaper. Whatever Jesus' reason was, though, for going out into the burbs, you got to wonder, when he laid his head down that night, what was he thinking about? Mm. Did he consider the other things he could be doing with his life that fear and anxiety start to creep in? Like we know that Jesus experienced a full range of human emotions, so certainly he felt something in that moment. What do you think he felt? I have no way of knowing this for sure, but I don't think Jesus slept well that night because the next day he got up and went back into Jerusalem to face down a powerful institution whose oppressive behavior had become a burden, had become a burden for him. Um, burden's not a, it's not a word we use every day. It's kind of a biblical word, at least in this sense. It's like a heavy weight that you just can't shake. It's an ultimate concern, a sense of being called to address the brokenness of this world. It's a sense of purpose that we don't just possess, but it possesses us. It's a concern that grabs hold of your life and just won't let go. And you got to wonder what was it like for Jesus to have a burden so heavy resting on him that carrying it was his destiny. Have you ever been burdened like that? 
Have you ever been so burdened by the brokenness of this world that you can't look away, that you feel like you must do something about it? What would it look like to face it? You know, author and civil rights activist James Baldwin says, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. You know, I find so much encouragement from the champions of civil rights who committed their lives to bending the arc of justice, as King said, um, arc of the universe towards justice, as King said. And I think about civil rights leader John Lewis, who courageously led a march across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama on March 7th in 1965, with a group of about 600 unarmed protesters who were fully aware that a violent mob awaited them on the other side of the bridge. They were just marching for voters' rights. You know what they did? They crossed the bridge anyway because they were burdened by the brokenness of this world. That day became known as Bloody Sunday as John Lewis had his skull fractured and others were beaten till they were bloody. But they were burdened. Something had grabbed hold of their life. You know, John Lewis is often remembered for encouraging those burdened by the brokenness of this world to speak up, speak out, get in the way, get in good trouble, necessary trouble, he says. You know, in this final week of Jesus' life, Jesus knew full well what awaited him in the temple he wasn't ignorant of what would happen if he crossed the bridge back into Jerusalem. He was fully aware of the consequences of speaking up, speaking out, getting in the way, getting in good trouble. But it was a burden that he just couldn't put down. Have you ever been burdened like that? In Mark chapter 11, verse 12, it picks up the next day as Jesus and his disciples walk back into Jerusalem. And look at what it says. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. This is kind of a humorous story. It'll lighten the mood a little bit. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went out to find if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, no fruit, um, because it was not season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And I like this detail. And the disciples heard him say it. Why do you think he includes that detail? Like, I'm always asking these questions. Like, and I don't know that we'll ever know exactly why Jesus cursed this fig tree. It seems fairly out of character for him and maybe even, I don't know, a little petty. Can I say that? Bible scholars, in fact, have struggled to understand this perplexing story. And to be honest, we're not going to resolve it today. What we do know is that Mark uses this cursing of the fig tree symbolically to teach us something about Jesus' judgment of the temple. And he does this by using a literary device that we talked about in the first part of this series through Mark's gospel. A literary device called, um, well, it's become known as a Markin sandwich. You may remember that. This literary technique that Mark uses it's a literary technique that Mark uses where he starts a story, 
then interrupts the story with another story, seemingly unrelated story sometimes, and then returns to the original story. And so he starts with story A, goes to story B, comes back to story A. There's actually a lot of these in Mark's gospel, um, at least nine of them. And this is one of them. And understanding his literary device will help us understand what's going on in this story. Now, in this section, Mark opens with the story of Jesus cursing the fig tree that we just read. And he transitions to the story of Jesus in the temple. And then he returns to the fig tree story. Now, in verse 15, Mark finally gets around to the temple showdown. The meat or, uh, or, or, or PB&J of the sandwich, if that's the way you roll. Uh, look at Mark chapter uh, 11, verse 15. It says, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught, um, as he taught them, he said, it is, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and the disciples went out to the city, went out of the city. So, all right, so here we have Jesus enters this massive temple complex and begins turning over tables. And these weren't cheap uh, particle board or tables like you get from Ikea or Walmart or even Target. Target's somewhat quality. I'll give it to Target. Um, but each one of these big wooden, like solid wood stone tables would have exploded when it hit the ground. And the jars that were holding the money, the coins, would have shattered when they hit the floor. Coins would have flown everywhere. Now, I've always heard this story, and it's always kind of like, what's going on here? I've always heard this story told as a warning against selling stuff in church. But personally, I really think that's an oversimplification uh, of this story and it misses the deeper systemic issues that are perverting the purpose of the temple. Now, when I read this story in context of the ancient world, I don't think Jesus is taking issue uh, with the money changers and vendors in the temple. Because they were an essential part of the temple operations that everyone depended upon. The temple wasn't like a church. This was a massive 35 acre complex designed to support the needs of Jewish people from all over the region who traveled to Jerusalem to worship and offer sacrifices to God. And so the outer courts of the temple where Jesus turned over the tables, the outer courts by necessity functioned more like a marketplace, which made it possible for people to make the long journey to Jerusalem in a world where you couldn't just rent a U-Haul or throw your stuff in the back of a truck, people tended to travel fairly light and buy what they needed when they arrived at their destination. So I don't believe Jesus took issue with the presence of vendors in the temple court, many of whom were selling animals to be used as a sacrificial offering. Now, this was a different world, so this may seem a little strange to us. In fact, I think today we would have all kinds of animal rights issues um, and, and uh, we would have all kinds of reasons to protest the temple. But in the first century world, 
this was just part of life. In fact, Jesus would have grown up making pilgrimages to Jerusalem with his parents, seeing them purchase sacrificial offerings from the vendors. His family would have depended upon the temple amenities. So I don't believe Jesus has an issue with the presence of vendors. Rather, I think it's Jesus' own lived experience that's a key to understanding what's happening in this story. As I mentioned earlier, Jesus grew up in a poor working class family from Nazareth. He was well acquainted with the struggle of being poor, marginalized, overlooked, and burdened by economic system that privileges some while oppresses others. People from Jesus' part of town often struggled at the poverty level, barely able to make ends meet. Like many people today, they felt like the system was rigged against them. And that's because in many ways it was. There weren't many open doors for people from Jesus' hometown. They were mostly farmers living in fear that one bad year or one bad harvest could ruin them financially. And so the trek to Jerusalem for Jesus would have triggered all kinds of memories of the struggle and sacrifices his family made when they traveled to Jerusalem to worship in the temple. You know, story like, stories like these make me wish there were smartphones back in Jesus' day because somebody would have recorded the whole event and we'd know exactly what happens. Because I want to know when Jesus turned over the tables and when everybody's attention turned to him, what did he say? You know, in Mark's gospel, he tells us that Jesus taught them. But then he only includes one line from his teaching. Talk about being robbed. I want to know the whole thing. But look at what he says in Mark 11, verse 17. It says, and as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? but you've made it a den of robbers. Now this word translated nations is ethnos in the original language. It's kind of similar to our word ethnicity. It's often translated race or people or nations. In other words, Jesus is saying that the temple was included to be a place of belonging, an inclusive place, a place for all people, for all nations, a place of belonging to everyone making the pilgrimage from wherever they came from to Jerusalem, no matter what their background was, no matter what their ethnicity was, no matter what nation they were from. That it's supposed to be a place of belonging. And I think if we look at who Jesus' anger is directed towards in this passage, it'll help us understand the injustice that permeates the temple culture. You know, in three of the four gospels, they all include this story of Jesus turning over the um, tables in the temple. But in three of the four gospels, they particularly mention the vendors that Jesus targets. I like to call these guys the dove dealers. Um, it's the vendors that were selling doves. And I think these dove dealers are specifically called out because they're one of the primary points of exploitation in the temple. You know, historians tell us that thousands of people bought lambs and sacrificed lambs 
every year. Hundreds of thousands of people bought and sacrificed lambs in the temple every year. But Jesus doesn't mention them. Mark doesn't mention them. Rather, he mentions the dove dealers that are specifically called out. In fact, in John's retelling of this story, Jesus directly talks to them. Look at what he says in John 2, verse 16. To those selling doves, he said, get out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. What did Jesus have against these dove dealers? These guys selling doves in the temple courts. You know, I think the origins, origins of Jesus' frustration can be traced back to the Hebrew scriptures. It's there that we learn that the doves were a more affordable sacrifice prescribed for people who could not afford a lamb. What this meant is that low-income families like Jesus, Jesus's, often did business with these dove dealers. And these guys are some shady individuals. They had some predatory practices that further exploited people who were disenfranchised, who were already struggling to make ends meet. You can't afford a dove, no problem, right? The dove dealers would loan you the money, use your land, the land that you farmed as collateral, and then when you couldn't make the payment, you lost your land. And Jesus would have been well acquainted with this system. In fact, in Luke's gospel, when we read about Jesus' family going to the temple in chapter two, shortly after Jesus was born, guess what sacrifice his family bought and offered in the temple? It was a dove because they were poor. You see, Jesus wasn't just on the side of the poor and the oppressed. He was poor and oppressed. He was one with the poor and oppressed. And following Jesus means doing the same. You know, if I've learned anything, is that we have to constantly check ourselves. We have to examine our own lives. Because if history has taught us anything, is that it's easy to get tangled up in a system that further oppresses and exploits those who already live with the system's knee on their neck and not be aware that we ourselves are complicit in the perpetuation of unjust systems. You know, what we see in this story is something that never changes. And that's that those that benefit from these systems won't give up a won't give up power without a fight. Look at what happens in Mark chapter 11 verse 18. It says the chief priests and teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. This is when they heard Jesus teaching in the temple. They began looking for a way to kill him. But they feared because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. I read this story and I wonder what amazed them. What were they amazed at? I want to want to know. You know, maybe they were amazed because Jesus helped them imagine a world that was more just and equitable, where everyone experienced the kind of belonging, access, and opportunity that's all too often afforded only to certain people. I think that kind of world is possible. But we do have to be able to imagine it first. You know, in Mark chapter 11, verse 20, Jesus returns to the story of the fig tree. Look at what he says. It says, in the morning, 
as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered that Jesus said, what, what Jesus, Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed is withered. It's withered from the roots. You know, it's the details in this story that I think really make a difference. You see, Jesus wasn't just cleansing the temple. He wasn't just clearing out the unjust practices in the temple. As the heading of this story implies, right? He's pronouncing it to be an institution that's been so deeply infected by systemic injustice that it is dead and unable to bring about the kind of diverse, equitable, and inclusive conditions that Jesus imagines when he quotes from the prophet Isaiah. It says, my house shall be a house called a house of worship, a house of prayer for all nations. I think Jesus is imagining life of heaven coming to earth where people of every nation, tribe, race will be gathered together in community with one another. Where we all belong, where we all are included, where all experience a kind of kindness, compassion, where we all experience the love of God and we experience it through one another in relationship with each other. The kind of community that makes justice possible. Unity possible. I think Jesus is imagining the sense of mutuality and interdependence that creates a community where all needs are met, where no one goes without, where everyone's cared for, where poverty, hunger, homelessness, violence cease, and we live together with a bond of peace. I think Jesus is imagining that kind of community where we care for one another and we care for all of creation. I believe Jesus believes that kind of community is possible. Question is, do we believe it's possible? Can you imagine it? As the band comes back up, I want us to spend just a few moments in silence thinking about, dreaming about, imagining the kind of community that Jesus envisions when he storms the temple, stages a protest, turns over table, demands justice, demands that this world be made right. When he carries this burden, that's just too heavy for him to place it down. Let's sit for a moment. You can turn the lights down just a little bit. Just spend a few minutes in silence just thinking about what it's like for us to be burdened like that.
God, we're thankful for the example of Jesus. The burden that was placed upon his life so hard that he could hardly rest. God, we see it with our imagination, the eye of our imagination. We see him walking into the temple, standing up, speaking out, making good trouble, necessary trouble to bring about a world that's more whole and healed and just. God, we pray that we feel the burden that you've placed upon our lives as a community of hope and transformation dedicated to following Jesus. May we feel the weight of it. And may we move in this world. Our hope set on you. Our feet following you. Our lives looking more like you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Mm. Amen.